we're seeing different places around the globe where regulatory sandboxes or regulatory clarity is helping to drive compliant innovation and adoption. So I think that's great progress. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey guys, good morning. How are you? Doing well. We are uh, we're getting some snow where I am, so if uh, if the power goes out, you guys just carry on. <laughs> Is that normal though? Does that happen often? Uh, no? no, not not typically. But this has been uh, heavy wet snow, but uh, you know we're not we're not unhappy to see it. It's been a pretty uh, pretty mild winter so far, so we're due. Jason, I was up in New Hampshire a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, and it was like heavy wet snow. And one tree fell on my dad's boat and another tree fell on my dad's car, like within 10 minutes. Oh, that's rough. <laughs> Just that's a nightmare rough. scenario. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely happens. So, um, you know, part of the New Hampshire homeowner kit should come with a chainsaw. <laughs> but uh, in, instead of trying out your chainsaw and trying to uh, cut up the, uh, the fallen timber part, let's jump over to uh, what is it that you've tried recently? Anything exciting? Yeah, so um, so I have a research tool which I want to talk about. Um, so last week I tried this tool, which is getting a lot of traction, by the way. In the so it recently launched, and it's called Bubble Maps. So so one common issue with crypto newbies is how hard it is to read uh, block explorers, right? Because block ex- explorers barely communicate any information, and so typically block explorers are used to check if your transaction is confirmed or not. But a lot of people do not know that block explorers can be used for like real hardcore research. I'm sure Jack uses it all the time, right? So so block explorers sort of tell you what wallets interact with each other and how transactions are mapped out between specific wallets. So you can almost also see what specific group of wallets act together. And so uh, in essence, you can build this relationship diagram between wallets and transactions. And that's exactly what uh, Bubble Maps does. So it's a research tool to sort of visualize uh, any information that's uh, spit out by a block explorer. So I know we're going to talk about GUSD or Gemini US dollar. They have mapped out the total supply for GUSD. And so you can see close to 46% of GUSD is uh, controlled by Gemini. And then close to 12% is locked uh, on curve. So this is again, so you can move things around, really helps you sort of... uh, make complex information easier, kind of similar for Shiba coin. So you can see how there is one dead address, which has 41% of uh, Shiba tokens, which is another, it's a dog meme coin. But what's really interesting here, which I honestly found out after using bubble maps, is that Binance and Crypto.com control close to 10% of the total supply for Shiba. 
right? So, so you can see all these interactions uh, in a really colorful way. So, so that's what I tried uh, last week. I thought it was a really cool product. So Parth, for those those who, who might be interested, that it looked like it was an app. It was uh, bubblemaps.io. Yep. But the, the graphic there was you had you had different um, circles or bubbles that were varied in size based on the, the size of the, the, the asset or the size of the transactions around those particular assets. So it gives you that, that visual representation along with uh, some relationship uh, to other activities. Exactly. Yeah. So the idea is to examine wallets that you follow and also identify relationships between uh, transactions or contracts or wallets. That's exactly it. I like the visual aspect because often you're just looking at numbers and it's like if you're looking at block explorers traditionally it's it's kind of hard to follow things or tell that one wallet is so much bigger than another versus just being able to visualize it it's kind of cool this is interesting timing i was actually having a conversation with someone else earlier today about data visualization and the fact that block explorers are uh they're valuable but you need additional context so um that the ability to get behind the scenes and even if you're running uh nodes for various blockchains that's when you get the opportunity to, to do deeper research and then have that type of uh, opportunity to do visualization. So I assume, I don't know, but I would assume perhaps that Bubble Maps has uh, a number of different nodes that they're connecting into in order to capture that data. That's exactly it. Yeah. So you have to have all the information from a node to uh, get to a point where you can create these bubbles. I, I just think it's a really cool visual upgrade to Block Explorers, right? So when we Go to any block explorer. It's just sometimes it's boring. It's just a lot of numbers, and this is a good uh, visual representation. Cool. And I, I'm going to uh, say that bubbles is the the graphic, not implying any type of um, condition around the market. So let's be very explicit around that. We're not trying to uh, read too much into that. Um, you know, I think about that transparency, and I, I think about what's happening in the current market environment. And we're seeing a lot of transparency play out with respect to uh, different entities dealing with times of stress. So, you know, we are um, in January of 2023. We've been experiencing uh, market disruption tied to failures of stable coins and centralized exchanges having knock-on effects and impacting other entities. And last week we saw that Genesis, which is one of the large uh, broker dealers in the crypto space, uh, very active in the centralized lending space, they've gone ahead and filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, but looks like it was three of the Genesis entities, so not all of the businesses. And according to my notes, it was uh, Genesis Holdco, uh, Genesis Global Capital, and Genesis Asia Pacific Arm. So, uh, I do believe that the Asia Pacific arm may have had some exposure to three hours capital, but Jack, I wanted to pull you into this part of the conversation. I know you've been following uh, markets and looking at the the impacts of lending and and where there are um, I'll call them knock on effects for lack of a better term. What's what's your take, or what do you what are you reading here? What's the scale uh, of this type of bankruptcy, or how many people uh, are you know, potentially affected as a result? Yeah, so we don't have absolute numbers, but because of the filing, we got some insight into the the sheer size of Genesis lending operations. Remember last year, we had Voyager, we had uh, Celsius, and we had BlockFi later in the year, um, all 
uh, eventually file for, uh, I believe, Chapter 11 in all three cases. Um, and now we have that playing out with Genesis, who froze funds back in November. And so for all intents and purposes, like they've been effectively non-operational for the past three months. And I think if we saw some of the like market response recently, this was sort of uh, baked into the cake somewhat. A lot of people expecting this likely to be the outcome, unfortunately. But if we look at the sheer numbers, like this was basically the largest, you know, institutional lender out there in crypto. Over 100,000 creditors uh, listed um, in in the sort of the box where you could check off how many creditors it was sort of the max over a hundred thousand creditors liabilities listed between one to ten billion um, and owing a combined uh, 3.5 billion plus to their top 50 creditors uh, Gemini of course being the number one with their Gemini earned product uh, over I believe 760 million dollars is the the liability that was listed on the bankruptcy filing there that's really interesting again transparency because of the the filing, uh, but there's a lot of questions that that still need to be determined. I think we saw uh, communication out from Barry Silbert, who who leads uh, Digital Currency Group, talking about uh, this. So you know, we don't want to dive too deep into the letter, but you're seeing communication from multiple sides of of this particular situation. We saw the you know communication from uh, the leadership of the Gemini Exchange. A uh, little bit of this playing out in um, social social media, which is always kind of a strange and interesting aspect of the crypto markets. But when I when I think about this, we sort of look back and say, how did we get here, right? So we know that there were these other counterparties that have had experiences or challenges that have, have led us to this point. But now we're we're looking and saying, okay, there are ongoing operations, right? So Gen- Genesis, their spot trading businesses ongoing, their derivatives trading businesses ongoing. So um, you you talked about the market sort of anticipating this type of filing. And I, I did a quick look before we got together today just to find out what was the impact on uh, the price of Bitcoin over the past month. And, you know, we've had some some challenging news, but Bitcoin has been uh, holding pretty steady. And, it you know, it's up uh, roughly 35% uh, over that time. So I think that in the face of this transparency, the market's able to understand and look forward beyond some of these uh, recent filings. Yeah. And and ultimately, what's the difference to the market from, in, you know, their depositors being frozen and they're not issuing any more loans to the actual filing of the bankruptcy three months later? It's kind of like the, the market already kind of saw, okay, this is the writing sort of on the wall in some respects. Um, and this is sort of the the formality finally coming to pass. But like nothing has actually happened yet in terms of like liquidating assets and trying to pay back creditors. So some of that, of course, can can have an impact on the market. But I think from the perspective of just like overall sentiment, this was already sort of expected, I think. And, and we can see that in price action over the past few days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Going back to what Jason said about uh, Barry Silbert's letter, I think one important point worth mentioning is that uh, Barry wrote that neither DCG nor any of its employees, including those who sit on the Genesis board of directors, were involved in the decision to file for bankruptcy, which I think is is really interesting. Um, And then, uh, Jack, correct me if I'm wrong, but Genesis will be getting close to $1.2 billion from DCG in in the next few years. Is that correct? 
No, so uh, basically, from from what we know publicly, that sort of Barry has has written about um, and has been disclosed. There's north of five hundred million dollars that's payable in May of this year, twenty twenty three, and then the promissory note, which is. I believe $1.2 billion and related to the Three Arrows capital loss on Genesis's balance sheet, that promissory note isn't due for like 10 years. So we're talking like 2032. And so in terms of anything that rolls onto DCG, at least from what we can see at the moment, uh, it has a lot more to do with the, the $500 million that's due uh, the middle of this year. Yeah, I, I read something similar in terms of that that 10-year uh, maturity on, on the note. I think... What, what is really interesting, back to your comments, Jack, around sentiment, this is one element of what's happening in the market, but we're seeing other things. You know, Parth, you've been following very closely uh, the, the word on the street regarding Ethereum and the, the potential timing of the Shanghai hard fork, which would allow for uh, staked Ethereum to be released. Uh, I actually just saw a headline this morning that there was a soft fork to do some testing, uh, making progress on those fronts. So, that, that's just another example of uh, story or momentum that's building in the industry around uh, improving the user experience. I think that, that plays a lot into how uh, sentiment is, is shaping up right now. Yeah, and honestly, if you're, you know, if you're in bankruptcy and you have all of these crypto assets and the liabilities are at the time of filing for bankruptcy potentially in dollars, then creditors are in a better situation if the price of assets are rising. I mean, it's somewhat ironic. I I was reading a couple of articles over the weekend and a common theme that I was hearing was, you know, some thought that perhaps because the centralized lenders or because of the the state of the the market right now, there may not be as much um, lending, therefore not as much shorting. And that could actually end up benefiting the stability of, of the valuation. Now, we, we don't know that for sure, but it is one, uh, one perspective that, that seems to be discussed in the market today. I mean, it's definitely a very different market, right? You basically took out all of the centralized lenders because they're all more or less out of business for the most part and not lending. And so that is, it, you know, the, the GBTC trade was huge uh, and now there's no more creation of those shares. It's like, it is a very different market environment now. Um, the second largest exchange is no longer operating. And we know from, from some of the things that came out that the exchange wasn't actually buying those coins. Um, and so could we, could that be a benefit? Could that be a negative? I, you know, Again, leave it to, to the listeners to decide, uh, but it's definitely a different market structure and we have some time to to sort of discover what that actually means. Speaking of lending, uh, I know we spoke about uh, CFI lending. Do we quickly want to do, uh, do we want to talk about DeFi lending and Maker? Yeah, we can absolutely do that. I, I think that maybe there's a common connection too, because as, as you think about Maker, uh, one of these entities that has uh, a relationship with uh, Genesis was Gemini. And, you know, the Gemini Earn product, as Jack mentioned, there were a lot of folks who have assets that may be encumbered for some time related to this bankruptcy. But uh, Genesis uh, isn't the only place where Gemini has been uh, engaged, right? Yeah, yeah they've, been, they've been pretty out there um, in, the, uh, in the DeFi markets. So, um, so I think the story which you're referring to is the story of uh, Gemini uh, and GUSD being a part of the PSM for MakerDAO. And so these are a lot of buzzwords. And so what I really want to do is kind of peel the onion and uh, just give a quick background to MakerDAO and the PSM. 
And tell, uh, tell us what is PSM, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so PSM is the PEG stability module. And so even before that, MakerDAO, for those of you who do not know, it's a DeFi lending protocol. So it's kind of like Aave or Compound. And so what that really means is that you have borrowers who deposit eligible collateral like Ethereum uh, or wrapped Bitcoin, and the protocol will automatically produce DAI, which is a stable coin, right, for the corresponding ETH. So that's the core feature of MakerDAO. MakerDAO is probably the oldest DeFi protocol. And I think as of now, it's in the it's always in the top three in terms of TVL or total value locked. So the idea is you deposit ETH and uh, you get DAI in return at a certain interest. And that's how the DAO makes money. So, so let's go to this thing called PSM or PEG stability module, right? So the PSM was a new innovation uh, which came out in 2020 right after the Black Thursday in March. So if you guys remember, Black Thursday was pretty much where crypto was going to zero almost, right? So around Black Thursday, uh, DAI was trading at 1.1 and it was really hard to get it back to a single dollar since the market was on fire, right? And so that's why the the PSM was created, uh, which was to maintain a hard peg on DAI. And so how did they do that? So they built the PSM where users can swap between any stable coins. So they can st- uh, swap between USDC, USDP, and Gemini USD and DAI with near zero fee. So that was kind of the idea of PSM. Why would they do that? The reason for building this was to maintain the peg for DAI as traders could arbitrage the price difference between DAI and other stable coins and, so, and maintain the hard peg. So that's kind of the story of, of the PSM, how PSM came out in 2020. And as of today morning, I think DAI, 40% of DAI is uh, generated by USDC. The total DAI generated by collateral is it's, it's close to 40%. Uh, and so a lot of people also consider that DAI has honestly just become uh, wrapped USDC. And so any, any comments on that before we hit the Gemini story? I think it's an explicit trade-off between stability and decentralization effectively, where the bigger you want this PSM to be, the more uh, stable you would expect DAI to be because you can always swap it. If there's billions of dollars of USDC sitting there basically saying, we'll trade one-to-one for DAI, well, then you kind of know that you'll be able to get that liquidity for the dollar. Uh, But at the same time, that means that that USDC is a larger portion of DAI's collateral and therefore if it's all sitting in one honeypot, it could be shut off if, let's just say, regulators decide that a decentralized dollar like DAI shouldn't be in existence, then they could have Circle freeze the, you know, those tokens. Exactly. That's 40% of its collateral. Absolutely. And that's where Gemini, USD, and Paxos come in. So back in September 2022, uh, Gemini approached MakerDAO with an offer. And so if MakerDAO... Uh, said okay said yes to keeping GUSD as part of the PSM then they would give MakerDAO 1.25% APY on any of the GUSD held and as of now you have close to 500 million DAI circulating in the world which is backed by 500 million GUSD right and so cut to now <laughs> Gemini earn explodes causing a lot of fear and uh, obviously we've spoken a lot about multiple centralized exchanges that have lied to us about their levels of solvency in the past few months. And so a lot of MakerDAO folks asked if Gemini is really any different, right? And that's why you had a proposal voting, whether they should still keep GUSD as part of the PEG stability module. So that's the question. Um, 
Yeah, Jack, do you want to continue from here? Yeah, and I would I would say a few days prior to that also, Tyler Winklevoss went to the Maker Forums and was sort of reassuring everybody that, hey, Gemini earned, this is a separate product, it's walled off from the custodian of Gemini, and GUSD is a separate product from even like Gemini the Exchange, and it's one-to-one backed by assets held in either FDIC-insured bank accounts or like short-term treasuries. Um, And all that's good and well, but I think the fear is that we don't have like legal precedent and we're not saying like, I don't think anyone in the maker community is saying that Gemini has solvency issues at the exchange level necessarily, but they're asking, what if they do? What if something happens with this Gemini urn and legally it could have implications for Gemini? And what if that has legal implications for GUSD and stablecoin holders aren't necessarily made whole because of all of this. And again, this is just a, an imaginary scenario that, you know, you're, you're just, you have to think of the worst possible case scenario here. And so uh, that this proposal was put out there to say, hey, should we wind down the, the GUSD PSM? So the Gemini stablecoin PSM, which was close to $500 million in size. Um, and, and the vote was really narrow down to like the last few minutes. Uh, it's, it's, pretty clearly suspected that Parify, uh, who is also an investor in the Gemini exchange, delegated their votes at like the last second uh, to a delegate that voted basically no change. Uh, and so that that made this narrow vote of 51% versus 49% to leave it as is. And, and that that's viewable on vote.makerdow.com for this particular poll. I, you know, Jack, I, I think about what you're saying in, in terms of the community. In my opinion, this is about a maturation process. And there are, there are actors who are saying that it's important to understand how counterparty credit risk factors into the stability of a given asset. So we think about that in terms of uh, comfort and, and where people are desiring to trade assets. You think about it from a lending perspective and the fact that we have had a series of uh, counterparty credit challenges that have led to bankruptcies and now encumbered assets and um, questions about recovery rates. It's interesting to me that you, you see this now spilling over into these decentralized finance protocols. So I, I, I do think that there's more of a a maturation learnings that can be taken from the traditional financial services spaces. And to me, I think it's, you know, regardless of the outcome, the fact that there's an action that's being explored, I think is uh, a sign of progress for the industry. Yeah. For me, I think I was following this proposal really closely. And I almost thought that GUSD would be taken off of the PEC stability module until Padify Capital, which is a VC firm, which backs Gemini, they decided to delegate their vote and and sort of change the vote, um, so to speak. So a lot of people are within the MakerDAO community are saying that it's almost like VCs let the people sort of play in their DAO, DAO's world uninterrupted. So it looks decentralized until they think it's going to cost them money, right? And then that's when they swoop in. And that's exactly, that's kind of close to what happened. Like within minutes left, Padify Capital uh, showed up, they kind of squashed uh, whatever words there were, and then they decided to uh, prop up their own investment in Gemini. And from Gemini's perspective, if you look at uh, the total number of GUSD tokens circulating, I checked last week, I think it was 570 million roughly. 
and there's 490 million GUSD in the maker vault. So that means that 85% of GUSD's float that Gemini makes money on uh, is is attributable to this maker PSM. Uh, so if that was closed, then the vast majority of the stablecoin uh, would, would effectively be redeemed, you would assume. Yeah. I think it just goes on to talk about the theme that we've been discussing in the past, where you see MakerDAO investing in multiple real-world assets to reduce exposure to USDC or USDP or GUSD. Um, and uh, and so instead of going to these stablecoins, they, they are trying to invest in US treasuries directly, uh, since that reduces counterparty risk. Uh, and uh, and USDC and a lot of these stable coins are also backed by dollar deposits or US treasuries by themselves, right? So it's it's much better to go directly to US treasuries. And if you think about functionally what they're actually doing, what well, what is a stable coin? It's, it's kind of, to the issuer, it's kind of a money market fund. But of course, for the, the holder, it's just a, a stable value token that doesn't pay a yield. And so from from maker's perspective, if they could own overnight uh, yield-bearing collateral treasuries, then they would. Basically, if they could own the underlying of that stablecoin, then they would, but they sort of can't under the current structure. They haven't found a a good way to be able to do that. Um, And so for right now, what they've done is agree to these agreements with USDC, with Gemini, uh, about getting sort of a pass-through of a portion of that yield as a marketing expense. Well, I, I think that's an important component because it DAI does not in and of itself generate yield, right? So I think, you know, Jack, when you, when you talk about it, it's like a fund. I What I think you mean is that there is an intention to maintain the stability at par. And the fact that the you have these PSMs that allow for, um, in, I'll call it a, a very solid forward-looking um, result in terms of maintaining the value of that uh, collateral back in the die. It, it, it makes sense if there the value of that collateral uh, is exceeding the amount of die issued, as we know it should. Uh, we think about it like an over collateralized um, stable coin, but that that additional income can be used to pay expenses, as you're talking about. So I think it's not that it's looking to be passed through directly. Uh, to the holders of DAI, but the foundation itself ensures that the token is above uh, par in terms of the assets backing it as a result. Yeah. And I mean, even even better, we are starting to see the holders of DAI with the DAI savings rate move from, I think, 10 basis points to 1% was a recent vote. So there is a bit of yield pass through for DAI holders, which kind of plays at that whole idea of, could we start to see yields converge and, and Maker is a huge portal for that to, to start to happen. And, and that's, you know, it is an interesting um, possibility because now we're talking about, you know, the fiat, um, as we discussed before, risk-free rates of returns are creeping up as a result of the Fed increasing interest rates. So um, it is, it's, it's, a, it's a good evolving market. Um, I think one more thing I want to sort of springboard from the conversation around the DAI stablecoin is just talk briefly about uh, non-dollar denominated stablecoins, non-US dollar denominated stablecoins. And we saw uh, just this past week, uh, Banco de España, the, the, the Spanish central bank, had given the green light for a, a euro token, EURM, offered by the fintech company Money, 
to be used in a regulatory sandbox so that uh, eligible Spaniards could move small amounts of EURM token uh, using their phone. So I, I dug into that um, offering just a bit. Uh, it seems that uh, money, it's M-O-N-E-I, is a technology that offers point of sale solutions and it's adopted across uh, Southern Europe. You know, they've got uh, restaurants, hotels, et cetera, other entities that are using their application, which basically allows you to, to move value by scanning QR codes. If they're able to introduce a stable coin into that, that, that is also an interesting use case and integration. But more broadly speaking, I decided to look at uh, the denomination of, of Euro stable coins and the market value over the last uh, year or so. And it seems that right about now, we're about 241 million euro worth of stable coins down from a high of about 725 million uh, about a year ago. So again, impacted by uh, the crypto winner. But just generally speaking, I think there's a desire for users to have stable coins that are denominated in their local currencies. So I'm curious if you guys have a take on that. Yeah, I would say, I think I've been really surprised by the amount of uh, competition in, in Euro stable coins in the last few months. Um, so as you mentioned, the supply uh, is, is still pretty significant. And uh, what's interesting to me is the number of decentralized stable coins, which have also popped up. And they're honestly performing way better than I expected them to. So even with 10% supply that these decentralized stable coins hold, so these, de these decentralized Euro stable coins hold, they are responsible for close to 40% of the total volume transfer, right? So they have a much higher velocity or exchange of hands, which I think is, is really fascinating. But going back to what you've, Jason, you've mentioned this uh, a couple of times about how there are there would be strict guidelines uh, by by the re regulation, specifically Mika uh, or Mika. I don't know how you say it, but uh, I think that's going to bring a lot of new uh, uh, fiat-backed stablecoins in the euro market. Yeah, I, for those who aren't familiar, it's the the markets and crypto assets regulation. We we saw recently that. Um, the EU has approved use of stable coins for settlement against security transactions. Uh, this, again, this is the Bank of Spain. This is independent of any um, CB, central bank digital currency work that they, they're interested in. But I, I decided to take a, a quick glance across um, and, and saw that Japan also has some, uh, some changes pending where their regulator uh, is expected to allow for the use of stable coins for trading. Uh, so it's projected uh, by June of this year. So we'll see. But again, whether that's uh, yen denominated, euro, dollar, I think it, it could be a wide selection of stable coins. I don't yet know. I haven't dug that deep. But we're seeing uh, different places around the globe where regulatory sandboxes or regulatory clarity is helping to drive uh, compliant innovation and adoption. So um, I think that's great progress. I, I'd like to continue to see that that evolve and, and see more opportunities for uh, users and innovators, builders around the world to to know that as they're developing these products and capabilities, that they're going to be uh, usable by the populations. I know we're uh, we're we're at time for today, so I just want to thank you guys for for sharing your thoughts. Uh, really interesting discussion around Genesis and Maker, and we'll see everybody next week. 
digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trade Marks appearing herein are the property of the respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2023. FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.